Welcome to Crime Talk BK. This is your wonderful host, Joanna Perpich and Megan Duffy. Good morning, darling. And uh, good morning. How are you today? Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Big news week. Big news week. <laughs> uh, yeah, why don't you tell us, um, just foreshadow a little bit what we're going to be covering today. Uh, well, aside from the Republicans completely ruining our democracy... We got a little Weinstein, uh, Nexium update, a couple of murders, and Fotis Dulos is dead. Uh, I couldn't believe it. So Fotis Dulos is the guy from uh, Long Island or Connecticut, 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 who killed his school teacher wife allegedly, but he's dead. So whatever, he killed her. 
And then him and his girlfriend were like hiding the evidence in like the dreams around their super posh neighborhood and yeah. just acting like psychos. Um, <laughs> Her DNA was all over everything. Yeah. So and he, his. So he, uh, yeah, tried to kill himself this weekend. They found him. I guess he did eventually die in the hospital. Yeah, he survived a couple of days. Anyway, um, what do I have? I have an exoneration. Some lighthearted news. Well, it's like sad lighthearted. Oh, crap. Um, and then um, I have some actually hometown stuff. A uh, young woman in Houston has gone missing. And I know that a lot of our listeners are here in New York. Uh, but, you know, New York is a popular place for, I'd imagine, runaways. Um, sure also, sex trafficking, here. possibly. There's some other Houstonites here, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hello, Roxy Perpich, friend of the show. <laughs> um, yeah, so <clears throat> keep your eye out for that. Oh, and then, well, I just have a lot of texts. Sorry, I just got back from Dallas, so I think I have, like, Texas on the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a Dr. Death update. Ooh. Yeah. Excellent news. How was Dallas? I love Dallas. Dallas has great barbecue, and it's hilly, which was quite nice. It's, yeah, it's a cool little place. I liked, uh, I hung out in Deep Ellum a lot when I, my... Not friend of the show, ex-boyfriend lived there. Oh, very, very not friend of the show. Not friend of the show. Um, that's funny. Um, yeah, Dallas is doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to this lovely park, and then my friend's like, "This is where Kennedy was assassinated." I'm just like, "Oh, oh, you went, you went to the grassy knoll on accident." <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was like downtown at this conference, and I'm just like walking around. And I'm like, "Oh my god, there's nature." And I'm like frolicking. Yeah. And then my friend picks me up and she's like, hey, so how was the memorial? I'm like, what? Dewey Plaza. It's much smaller in area than, it, <laughs> than you think it is when you first see it. <coughs> and like you think the book suppository is is a lot farther away and it's not. It's yeah. just, everything is really tight. Um, also, dear, dear listeners, I have a three week, third week of a cold. So I might be a little phlegmy. On the radio, please forgive me. I'm sure they will. <sighs> I have a little champers. Girl, make you feel better. You want to do the announcements while I cough? Sure. Okay. Announcements this week. Um, we at here at Radio Free Brooklyn are in the middle of our drive to five fundraising campaign. And that means in May, we turn five years old and we need to raise $25,000 to continue bringing you this wonderful commercial free independent radio for another five years because we think raising money should be fun. We have fun challenges on the website. You can win some prizes, score some t-shirts, um, take the quiz. Please enter uh, crime talk BK as your favorite show and taking the quiz and you'll get more prizes, prizes, prizes. Also, um, you can just make a donation through the website, um, buy some merch, and if you're feeling jazzy, call 718-673-8201 to leave a message letting us know why you love Radio Free Brooklyn, to wish us a happy birthday, and your message may get played on the air. Can you say that number one more time a little slower? 718-673-8201. Megan Duffy, NPR. <laughs> this is Phoebe Judge. Uh what else do we want to talk about? Oh, there's a mobile app for your phone. If uh, 
you're so inclined to not be in front of your computer to listen to us. I have it. I love it. Um, download it at the uh, Google Play Store or the Apple Store. And um, also sign up for our newsletter for upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. There will be events. What is going on upstairs? There will be events related to our anniversary, too. So um, please stay tuned. We'll have a lot. Hang of- out with us in person. Yes, ma'am. Uh, also, uh, we seem to have some, uh, Just some like things. reconstruction going on upstairs. So if you hear any drilling, I'm going to email Tom after the show. Yeah. <laughs> that was quite the voice you just did. Can I, Tom, if you're listening, there's construction going on during our show and it makes me displeased. Um, so I guess just to start us off, I'm going to start with the sad runaway news just cause. Okay. It's like short, but also I want everyone to pay attention so we can't get too into our champagne. Right. It's only one glass, but you never know. <clears throat> well, it's for you. <laughs> <laughs> this cough medicine, I'm going to be on the It's like halfway through the show. I'm just like, the lights are so sparkly and magical. I'm sorry. Joanna's napping. <laughs> <clears throat> Hold on. Give me one. Second. Yep. Okay. I'll start. Um, so real quick, uh, there was a Nexium lawsuit filed this week. Yes. So 80 people filed a lawsuit against Ranieri and I think 14 other people that were at the top level of the group. Um, it was a 200 page complaint. Um, most of these people in this lawsuit weren't sex slaves per se, but rather victims of the insidious period, sorry, pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still in the cult. Yeah. Uh, so Sally Brink, who was a named plaintiff, said she paid like $145,000 over the years for classes. Classes. I use that in quotes. Um Pay for her own brainwashing. I mean, quite frankly. So there's allegations of obvious fraud, uh, mental abuse, emotional abuse. Um, and the Nexium's leaders drew uh, from past period pyramid schemes. I don't know why I'm having such a problem saying that this morning. Period schemes. Um, they were. Uh, so these those. The whole idea was to make it physically and psychologically challenging for them to get out of the cult, right? Like that's, what, but that's what all cults do. So, mm-hmm. so that's not too much of a surprise. Um, so her roommate got her into Nexium. Hank, I hope they're still friends. Ugh. Right. That's um, really awkward. Oh, Jesus. Um, never live with a roommate. So, uh, she had flown to Los Angeles in 2004 for a five day course hosted in the, uh, Hollywood Hills and, at first, she found, you know, just like everybody else, she was profoundly moved by the teachings. And because they don't feed you, well, they keep the, you up for 12 hours. I know. It's fucking torture. Also, like, I can't seriously look at some <laughs> dude that looks like Keith Ranieri and call him Vanguard to his face. I can't. Um, but so, so that's another thing the complaint lays out is that they, these, you have to be invited into Nexium. So you have these like hour lengthy interviews. And it's to weed out people like you and me who are, who think for themselves or are skeptical, yeah. if you will. Uh, 
skeptical. Um, so most of the plaintiffs on this complaint have had actually hidden their names because they say their reputations would suffer immense uh, damage mm-hmm. and job opportunity loss. Um, let's see what else. Uh, blah, blah, blah. The goal was to pinpoint their insecurities, blah, blah, blah. Um, okay, so this is something I didn't know, which is interesting. Mr. Ranieri uh, created a group for East Asian women called One Asian. Mm-hmm. Ick. I mean, it, that seems on brand for him. It does. It is, but it's just like, ick. Uh, which eventually recruited more than 100 women and also tried to develop another group that targeted women in, in college sororities. That one seems more likely to succeed, to yeah. be honest. Well, they're already in a cult. <sighs> I'm guessing you were not a sorority girl. I was. Wait, that's really? How, that's how I know. What? Yes. I took over and shut it down. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like a bad, like an actually bad sorority girl. I'm a, I'm a nightmare. I'm a nightmare <laughs> to organize groups. <laughs> Sorry. That's um, really funny. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so one plaintiff said in this complaint that um, she participated in what was supposed to be, uh, what was quoted as being treatment for Tourette's. Mm-hmm. So Okay. <laughs> But ended up suffering extreme verbal abuse. And when she got pregnant, Miss Salzman, if you recall, Lauren Salzman, who was a uh, defendant and pled guilty, didn't go to trial and then testified against Mr. Ranieri. Miss Salzman told her that having a child would ruin her life and she cut off all contact with her. Then another woman on the complaint said she got uh, breast cancer and uh, the group told her that the can- she brought on the cancer her- him- herself. To get back at her husband. Oh, that's how cancer works. And I that she should cancer. just do the ethical thing and die. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, Ranieri also started his own news organization called The Knife of Aristotle. I mean, this guy. God. Is, he in, is he in like <laughs> Mensa's too or whatever? It's called Mensa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, because he, he withheld all outside news. So it was just it was just this, the name of his propaganda machine. Yeah. Uh, so oh. if you want to read more, the complaint uh, has been filed. I got all of this from Gothamist. Oh, no, I'm sorry. New York Times. This is from the New York Times. Um, <laughs> Those are two very different. Very things. different. Very sorry. Very different. And Ranieri, this morning, I find out his sentencing hearing is April 16th. So I will keep you posted. I hope he dies. I feel like Keith Raniere could have like, so I went to this like weird philosophy cultish cult light school before for college. Okay. I thought it was like the lighthouse or whatever the hell that was called. Landmark. Uh, Landmark. <laughs> Sorry, people. Cult-y. And um, Keith Raniere, I'm like, yeah, he totally could have gone to my college. Mm-hmm. He would have been like the weirdo. No one would have, he wouldn't have had any friends, but he... There's a lot of those in college. Oh, God. There's so... We had, like, this kid at our school that had really... He was, like, a veteran. He had really bad PTSD. Mm-hmm. And he had, like... I don't say this lightly. He had, like, murder eyes. Yep. Got it. 
And it was like Cold so. Steel. Well, it was empty. He was kind of like anxious and paranoid. And I'm sure that so much of this is like untreated mental illness. Like Robert Durst? Kind of. But it was just kind of like you would be like in class with him. And if he like disagreed with you, you'd just be like, oh, I have to like hide in my room for a week. Oh, dear. It was like it felt like unsafe. Wow. How do they let him keep going to school? He to be fair, he well, he did stalk one of my friends. (laughs) <laughs> okay which is like don't do that yeah it's not gonna help your degree program um but like when i think of keith veneria i'm like i wonder if he was like that guy in college where it's like you're like he's like on one side of the table and everyone else is like bunched together on the other side just being like ah. i don't know Ranieri also looks like he has bad body odor yeah it's like the long hair and like the sweaty and the he just ick He's just, he just gives, skeeves me out. He's just so gross. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my. But I don't know. It's like, I kind of want there to be a Nixium movie. Is that bad? But I want that. I want a Netflix series because yeah. I can dive deeper. Yeah, I, I, I like want something visual that I can kind of. Yeah, I mean, I get it. They can, like a Netflix or a Prime series can dive deeper and, yeah. and, and it doesn't have to be so um, entertaining to the entire mass population. Well, I think it's important, too. It's like, a, uh, so between you and me, I'm like a little bit susceptible to cults. Are you? Yes. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this on the radio. <laughs> well, I am a l- former Catholic, so I am not. Because <laughs> I busted out of one when I was 12. But it's like, I get the shine. I get the the shine that people see in it, you know? And so it's like, there's like a degree where I almost like need to watch these shows to like be like, no, Joanna. Why don't you just call me next time? You don't need to watch the whole show. (laughs) It's so amazing that I'm still alive. Like when I first moved to New York, I'd be like, oh, those people look interesting and they're handing out pamphlets. You're so sweetly naive. I love you so much. (laughs) I'm so old and cranky. And ate everything. <laughs> good pairing. Good I pairing. like talk to the um, what's that one group in um, Union Square who like have the bells and they chant and stuff. Oh, the Hare Krishnas. I talked to them for like an hour when I first moved here. They're like, come to our meeting. One of my girlfriends dated one. This is a long time. We're not friends anymore, but she ended up dating one, and she became like a yogi and all. I mean, like it was good for her in some ways, but in other ways I was like, this <laughs> is not right. Not right, girl. I almost thanks wish- for the free yoga. I appreciate it. Sometimes I wish that we were a vlog instead of a, of a radio show so that you could see our faces <laughs> when we talk. Well, my brother did suggest that we start recording our show and posting clips online. Oh, I think there actually is a way to do that, but I am like, that means I'd have to put more effort into I what I look like in the morning. I'm just too lazy. Like, I have I don't have my morning coffee before the show. I have to have some like perk in my eye. Yeah. Um. I did stop drinking the 32 ounces of coffee though. <laughs> now I'm down to like 18. What? What invoked the change? Uh, the fact that I had to run the show myself and I got jittery. Oh. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, yes, anxiety, the great um, curb of coffee. Total show anxiety. When I was here by myself for the first time, my hands were shaking. I was oh, like, okay, that's me. we got to stop that. That's not right. That's why I stopped cooking. I'm just kidding. I didn't say anything. <laughs> All right. You, this, you said the silent thing out loud. <laughs> this will not be used as a work sample. No, this is not the one you're going to submit for NPR, girl. <laughs> All right, I have to, like, rein it back in because this is actually really serious and everyone should pay attention. Okay. All right, so in Houston, we have a St. Thomas College student, Angela Wynn. She went missing um, this past uh, Wednesday. Um, oh, so it would have been, like, a week ago. Okay. So not this Wednesday, but last, last Wednesday. Wednesday. Yep. And she was uh, last seen. If this means anything to you, she left Guinan Residence Hall, probably not named after the Star Trek character. At around 6 p.m. on Wednesday, January 22nd. Mm-hmm. And um, they filed a missing persons alert two days later, and it's just been like nothing. Radio silence. Yeah. She's five foot, 110. Uh, she was last seen wearing a black coat, sneakers, and carrying um, kind of like a white and red or white and pink backpack. Mm-hmm. How old is she again? You know, they didn't say, but she's like a college student, so she's yeah. probably between like 18, 18 to 21. Yeah. Young. She's a kid. Yeah. Um, If you see her, call the Houston police at 832-394-1840. Again, that's 832-394-1840. And I know that Texas is like super far away. Um, but you know, you, you do hear like quite a few stories, I think about people from like all over the country who just pop up in New York, Yeah, you know, or anywhere else for that Los Angeles or anywhere else. So, you know, use social media, find it online, use social media and, um, pull the Billy Jensen. Yeah. We hope, um, Angela, that you're, that you're safe, you know, and that you get back home soon. Yeah. So that's my, um. I don't know. It's like uh, I always try to figure out, like, how much should I balance this show with national news or, like, local news from, like, other places. But then at the end of the day, I'm just like, I don't know. Like, if this is, like, personally important to both of us, it's going to be important to hopefully at least one listener. Hey, Roxy, friend of the show. Um, It's our show. We can do whatever the hell we want. Yeah. Um, What else do you have? Okay. Look at my notes. Um, oh, okay, let's talk about this. Man who allegedly dumped gr- pregnant girlfriend's dead body on street charged with murder. Oh, I think I have this one too. You do? Go for we it. Did not, we did not uh, share articles. Is this Kevin, Colvin Philp? Yes, this fucker. So, uh, on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, right, it was reported that a visibly pregnant woman was shoved out of a car and found dead on a Brooklyn street in the early morning hours. Tatiana Walton, 27, was found lying unresponsive on Lorraine Street outside her home in the Red Hook houses just after two in the morning. And she was pronounced dead at New York Presbyterian Methodist Hospital uh, uh, on arrival. Yeah. Yeah. So. The fucker who dragged his dead pregnant girlfriend out of the car and left her dead on a Brooklyn street corner has now been charged with her fatal strangulation. Um, now, before we go into that, 
there were two witnesses that saw him at the scene of the crime. Uh, one telling police they saw him drag something out of a car and before getting back into the driver's seat and speeding away. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. And then he got into the car and sped away. And then uh, there was another witness who said, oh, no, I'm sorry. The police found a ring surveillance video showing him abandoning the couple's two-year-old child in front of another home in Jackson Heights, Queens. That's fucking great. Here, kid, this is a yard. Yeah, here's a home. Like, how did he pick that house? Do we? Did you know it? Did you see anything about that? No, no I didn't. Uh, the child was found by the police and um, alone, oh. alone at four in the morning in the uh-huh. dark in a strange place. Can you imagine? No, that's heartbreaking. Um, I think it just goes to show that New Yorkers look out for each other. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, if I saw a random kid on my street, I would definitely, like, do something. I would go get the kid. Yeah. Bring it inside. Call Child Protective Services. Call the mm-hmm. police. Call some, like, call somebody. Um, so he's, he was arraigned yesterday. Um, for murder and a slew of other charges related to uh, the unborn baby mm-hmm. and uh, the two-year-old. So uh, he's due back in court on Monday. Yeah. Thoughts? Um, sorry, I have champagne cold brain. That's yeah, okay. Uh, well, I think the thing that, like, really infuriated me about this case is, well, there's, like, a couple of this guy's clearly an idiot. So, like, apparently his whole motive is that his girlfriend is pregnant and he doesn't want the baby. And I'm like, there are so many options. <laughs> you can break up. How about just you can, disappear? Like, yeah, you disappear can yourself. Disappear. You can talk about possibly an abortion if a baby is not Adoption. right for your family. Yeah, there is like so many things that are not killing your girlfriend and abandoning your two-year-old. Mm. And then also, I just love the way that the police caught him. Is is that like, he's just like, hey, I guess my girlfriend's missing. And then the detectives, I don't know, like do their job. Mm. And they're like, and they find like surveillance video of him dragging her body. I know. I'm just like, come on. Not a master criminal. No. They never are. Um, he also had, and I can't remember if you said this, he had 11 domestic incidents oh, reports. I did not see that. Against him. Oh. Right. Yeah. 11. He's a gem of a guy. The past few years. Yeah. So prosecutors are just like, yeah, this all checks out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, like something I think that our show is going to try to do from now on whenever we have a domestic violence story is we're going to give you the hotline. Mm-hmm. If you are in a domestic violence situation. So uh, let me see. The hotline is 1-800-621-HOPE. That's 1-800-621-HOPE. And um, something that, and that's a 24-hour domestic violence hotline with like New York City. 
And uh, the idea behind the hotline is that they can help connect you with like temporary housing. Um, uh, if that is too yeah. extreme of a step for you, they like have other support as well. Um, they have like counseling advocacy. And something that I really like is that this website on um, New York NYC.gov actually lists mm-hmm. what counts as domestic violence because I think for some people it could be hard to tell, you know, it's like, well, he doesn't hit me or, well, he hasn't like threatened to kill me. Right. You know, there's like a lot of things. So it's a broad spectrum people. Yeah. And so some of the things that uh, the domestic violence hotline will help you out with. Um, and then also like content note, this is not like a super graphic, but is a list of, mm-hmm. you know, acts. So if they're like, if the person's hitting you, kicking you, slapping you, if they force you to do anything sexual that you don't want to do, if they like threaten violence against you or, or against your kids or your pets, even yeah, That's or course of control, yeah, or also sometimes they'll threaten to kill themselves, mm-hmm. you or know, a family to, like, member, get back at you, yeah, um, like if they're like insulting you and criticizing you a lot, that's definitely a red flag, mm-hmm. you know, like if they're just like putting you down. Um, also, if they are like trying to control your behavior and like blowing up your phone and being like, oh my God, where are you? Like all the time stalking you. These are all things that, you know, like this hotline's there to help you. Also be aware that they're, they could also be trying to isolate you from your family. Yeah. And also your family probably does want to hear from you. Yes. Your family does want to hear from you. Yeah. Your friends want to hear from you. Even if like the last time you talked to them was a little bombastic, like. Doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, that's just something that, uh, like when I was reading this story, it's like, unfortunately too late for Tatiana, but I'm really hoping that maybe someone will like read this and help either someone they know or, um, be able to make moves or at least be able to identify the behavior in their lives or someone else's life. Yeah. Well, I have a lighthearted one after that. Please, because all I have left is Weinstein and comments on the impeachment. Well, when I say lighthearted, I mean, I'm talking about like Dr. Death. Give it to me. So it's not lighthearted, but it's like fun to gossip about. It is. All right. uh, So Christopher Dunch, uh, he's an ex-neurosurgeon. He's sentenced to life on Monday. Good. If you don't know who he is, listen to the podcast, Dr. Death. It's a very good podcast. All right. So who is Dr. Death? Christopher Dunch is a neurosurgeon who specialized in working on like <coughs> like nerve damage. He did like a lot of work on like people's backs, I think, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like back injuries, um, like paralysis type. Spinal, spinal injuries. Yeah. yeah. And it's... Debatable whether or not he was ever even actually a doctor. Right. And so he basically like conned his way into being a surgeon, Mm -hmm. which is terrifying. With a drug problem. Yeah. He's paid like $800,000 a year at his first job. Like at the job where all these deaths happened. And I'm like, clearly I need to reevaluate my career. I wish I was a better con artist. (laughs) I wish I could like do math. (laughs) Just be a surgeon. I wish I could lie better, honestly. Um, But he's the first doctor in the country to be convicted for behavior inside the operating room. And, quote, 
His outcomes were so poor, so beyond the accepted standard of care, that a grand jury indicted him on five accounts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a single account of harming an elderly patient. Mm -hmm. One of those five... I don't know if it was in the lawsuit that was related to the five, but one of them was his college friend. Yeah, his best friend is like paralyzed for life now because of this botched surgery. Yeah. And he's just mutilating people. And I think the thing that really stands out to me is is that um, so the prosecutor's whole argument is that he was so incompetent and he had such consistently bad results. Yep. That um, he must have done this knowingly, that he was a danger to his patients and that he had no business being in an operating room. Well, he yeah, he certainly knew he had no business being in an operating room. Prosecutors identified more than 30 patients at four hospitals who uh, suffered from his surgeries in 18 months. All in Texas? Yeah, they were. So he's basically, he was in the Dallas area and he got um, a pretty cushy job at this one hospital. And the uh, yeah, hospital eventually, like, quote unquote, like, let him go. But it, like, would reflect badly on them if he they came out with the story. So instead, they transferred him to another hospital. Right. So when they saw these, like, death tolls and everything rising and, like, the m- number of, uh, like, accidents and stuff in his operating room. They just like call up their buddies at this other hospital and they're like, hey, we have a surgeon for you. And they're giving him like these like wonderful recommendations so that he can get a job somewhere, somewhere else. else. Sounds like the Catholic Church. Yeah. A little bit. It does. Pass it off. Uh, yeah. I also vaguely remember, um, I think the Texas Monthly put out a big article, which is where this whole thing broke. Yeah. Was it Texas Monthly or Dallas Magazine? I think they've both covered it pretty extensively. I think initially the story came out of Texas Monthly and then the podcast happened and then the you know, like the lawsuits and everything else. Um, no, it was Dallas Magazine. Was it Dallas Magazine? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um. Yeah, the podcast interviews several of his former patients who have since been paralyzed or relatives of them who I think one of them committed suicide after living with the damage for some time. Uh, And like he showed no remorse. Mm -hmm. He's just a narcissistic egomaniac. So let me see. Um, So he spent 17 years in medical school, residency, and fellowships. That's like not how long that takes. I don't know how long that does. It takes usually maybe around like eight years tops. Oh, he was on the 17-year plan? Yeah. That says problematic. That's got problematic written all over it. And um, the jury found guilty after four hours. I feel like is a pretty short amount of time. I don't think so. Really? Well, it depends on what the char- what charges were actually listed. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure that they probably like if there wasn't a lot of hair splitting or minutia to decide, then I don't. I think four hours is fine. 
But uh, I read that. And I'm like, whoa, you know, like for like this huge trial, like for me, at least that seems like it was pretty like they're like, yeah, go through this one. Check. Go through this one. Check. Go through this one. Check. Again, he was found um, guilty of six different counts. Right. You know? Yeah. That's like 30 minutes on each count. Right. Well, I mean, they could have just been out having sandwiches and cigarettes and it really only took them two minutes. We'll never know. <laughs> um, but it's just like, it was just so egregious. He's, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, like when you go in for uh, nerve surgery, like... I'm not. I'm never going under the knife. Just I'm just gonna die. I don't care. Like I'm not doing it. <laughs> Maybe like check out your surgeons a little bit more carefully. Oh, but I know. Also, well, what like, are you supposed to do when the hospital's like he's the greatest here? I know. What are you supposed to do? That's one thing that makes me upset. Is that he was able to do what he did because he had help. Yep. So, yep. medical industry looking at you. But also, guys, please watch. Please listen to Doctor Death. It's a really Amazing podcast. It is a little body horror-y, so if that's something that's going to bother you a lot. It is compelling, y'all, though. Yeah. It is. All right, cool. So what have we got now? Uh, oh, NYPD misconduct lawsuits cost taxpayers $69 million last year. Mm-hmm. Sounds about on average for them. Actually, it's up. Oh. <laughs> it's up from the year before. Uh, it's a $30 million jump from the year before. Yeah. Um, newly released data shows that there were 1,383 civil lawsuits filed against the NYPD in 2019. That's down from the 1,615 from the year before, but it cost the city a 76% increase. So... Are the charges more egregious? Yeah. Or more provable? The largest settlement was $6.625 million awarded to Derek Hamilton, who spent more than two decades falsely imprisoned, much of it in solitary due to an alleged evidence fabrication by disgraced detective Louis Scarcella, who was in the news a lot last year. I wonder if maybe victims are just being more aggressive when approaching the NYPD with these issues. Maybe. Um, um, maybe defense attorneys are getting wiser. Yeah. Right. Uh, Carlos Medina, the so-called Bronx rapist, who was arrested by the NYPD officers and spent eight years in prison before he was exonerated in 2014, was awarded $3.25 million. Um, you know, the the problem is is the the NYP there's a complete lack of transparency with all these kinds of statistics. NYPD is basically hiding the information and saying that even if a lawsuit is filed, it doesn't mean it has any merit, which that is a fair argument. Mm-hmm. But why the thirty million dollar jump if there's no merit? Yeah. Um so uh The Legal Aid Society, shout out to that because my boy Kurt works for them, Uh, (laughs) works on the, they have this thing called the Accountability Project. And you and I were looking at the database that they compiled Mm -hmm. uh, several months ago that lists like the most problematic officers and how many times they've been sued and what for and blah, blah, blah. So um, in reviewing... These articles that I was reading, New York Times, New York Post, Daily News, and 
Gothamist. Yeah. Um, there were a few outstanding police officers that were listed. One officer in the Bronx Narcotics Unit has been sued 40 times. Uh, he's the top sued like that. I don't know if you want that title. I racked up the most lawsuits against the NYPD. I'm imagining like this, like NYPD, like award ceremony. Yeah. Most sued. Come get your award. I know, right? Here's your plate. So, so the NYPD has settled 17 of the federal lawsuits, totaling about $500,000. And then there's another guy uh, in the 67th precinct, nicknamed Bullethead by the Daily News. Huh. Right? Uh, He's been sued 32 times, known lawsuits, and settled for like 350000 And they just keep getting promoted. And move, like he's now been named sergeant in his 75th, 75th precinct. And that's the thing I don't understand is like, wh- how, how in the world do you keep getting promoted if you're costing the city an extra million dollars? Yeah, and also it's like, what are the conversations inside the police department? Like, what is the culture there? Where is it like, are they like, oh, fuck them and the unfair system? Like, you don't deserve to be sued. Like, are they having like little like bake sales for for their police officers who are accused of things? Right. Like go like internal GoFundMe's. Yeah. Right. Although, I, where's internal affairs in all of this too? On the side of the police, apparently. Like, what the fuck? Uh, yeah. So, um, also, keep in mind that these figures compiled by the Legal Aid Society only go back to 2015. So, they're m- more than likely much higher. Yeah. Yeah. And the figures for last year uh, related to um, the settled cases prior to litigation have not been released. More than likely based on confidentiality agreements. Yeah. So so that's fun. Yeah. Well, I actually have a pretty good... That segues (laughs) me into my next topic, actually, like, really well. Um, So New York State Supreme Court exonerated Rafael Ruiz after 35 years. Remind me who he is again. Um, So he, um, at age 25, was convicted of sexual assault in 1985. He served 25 years. For, That's right. Surprise! A crime he did not commit. Oh, do tell. Oh, I will. Um. All right. So, uh, let me see. So, Ruiz was accused of a sexual assault, um, in East Harlem in 1984. He was initially offered a plea deal that would have been a, a one and a half to three year prison sentence. Now I remember reading this. Yep. And that got blown into 25 years. So what happened? Well, he, All right. He refused. Yeah. So he refused the plea deal because he's innocent. And um, so then when he went to trial and was convicted, the courts, and this is actually something that's like somewhat common, is that judges will be like pissed off that you forced them to go to trial so you'll get longer sentences. So his sentence was between eight and a half to 25 years. He served all 25 years and then was released on parole in 2009. And like this entire time, he is like, he's like saying, he's like, guys, I am so innocent. So how did he get convicted in the first place? Well, he actually 
My butt hurts from this chair. Sorry. Keep moving around. Okay. So the woman who was attacked was like kind of like loose acquaintances with her attacker. Like they'd met a few times, Uh but I don't think that she knew him like super well, but his name was Ronnie. She knew his face and name. That's enough for me. Yeah. All right. So does Ronnie sound like Rafael Ruiz? I don't think so. No. And um, so Ronnie is a name Ruiz has never been called. They didn't test the rape kit until after the Innocence Project had the case. Of course not. And guess what? I'm surprised they even still had the fucking rape kit. I know, right? So the DNA didn't match. Kel surprise. And uh, so two weeks before, uh, so two weeks after the assault took place, police are talking to the victim. And she identified the apartment, like the apartment building. Where it happened? That uh, she thought the attacker was from. So I don't think that's where it took place, but that's where she like believed him to live. Uh-huh. The police like bust in. Um, they uh, find Ruiz there because his brother lives in that apartment building. Turns out the attacker lived across the hall. So all brown people look the same? All brown people look the same. And then, um, so on top of that, uh, they had a police lineup where the victim did actually match. She pointed out Ruiz. Uh, but Ruiz was also the only person. Oh, this is, I don't want to say. So basically everyone in the, um, lineup had like, um, like really like tight curly black hair. Mm Mm-hmm. And the attacker does not have that. So he's the only one. So he's the only one who had hair that even somewhat matched the attacker. Right? Okay. You know, and That's so... That's results right Yeah, there. and so That's I'm just cheating. like, what were the police thinking? It's like... I know that like... Did, uh, she, didn't, did she identify him? I think it was kind of like, I guess he looks most like the attacker out of all the people here. Okay, but that's this isn't a game of match the face to the description. Yeah. That's not what this is. And so that was all the stuff that like convicted him was that he was in the same, he was around the same apartment building and he had the same hairstyle. I think that's a coerced identification too. I mean, who who knows what exactly happened? Um, but then during his incarceration, this is the part that really infuriates me. The assistant district attorney. Oh, God. Or maybe a former district. I think he might have like left at that point. He begins investigating Ruiz's case. He's like, I'm not quite sure if that was uh, legit. Uh, and he finds the right guy. Oh, so he was a do-gooder. Yeah, he was a do-gooder. Okay. I was, okay. But he was like, Ooh, he found out that a man that named suppression of evidence. Ronnie... Matching the victim's description lived across across the hall mm-hmm. from the brother of the kid that they picked up. All brown people look the same. Exactly. Right. And Ronnie has a history of violence against women. Oh. Ding, ding, ding. So not Surprise. only did they like get like an innocent guy and ruin his life, but they let a rapist go free. Serial rapist. Right. Um, but fortunately, the Innocence Project has able, been able to step in and exonerate him. Now, of course, Rafael Ruiz was already released by the time the exoneration occurred, but it's still, like, important. It's, well, he's still a registered sex offender. He's still living under parole. You know, if he violates parole, like, all the, all those things. So they had to exonerate him. But also, 25 years is so insane to me that, like, Brock Turner doesn't get any jail time. And then you have this innocent guy who gets 25 years. Right. Fuck Brock Turner and his mom. This is, like, not right. Just... We have, have we filed a lawsuit yet? 
I'm sure he will. I mean, I don't think he even needs to just file a note of issue asking for a million dollars a year. Yeah. Quite frankly. So that means that all of these fees are going to go up another $30 million by mm. next year. Oh, I just, I don't like, there's like a, <coughs> how hard do you think it is to become a lawyer for the Innocence Project? I'm sure it's probably very competitive. I actually looked at becoming a paralegal for the Innocence Project and they were like, you're best served giving us money. I'm like, oh. Wait, fine. really? They said that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't know how I feel about, like, I love the Innocence Project and what they do, but I feel like it was created because the creator got O.J. Simpson off. So yeah. I'm so I'm conflicted. <laughs> I don't I want to work with him. But he does good work. They do good work. I don't know about him. I feel like it's been years of I'm sorry. I can't believe they wouldn't. Mm-mm. Yeah. They'll take my money, though. Mm. Mm. Uh, do you have anything one last thing to wrap up the show Weinstein yeah okay so a couple of ladies have testified about Weinstein I'm gonna most of this I got from uh, the Vulture column in New York Mag and I'm not gonna go into dirty deets because there's a lot of dirty deets uh, um, I will go into some of the most entertaining dirty deets though so Mimi uh, Haley uh, took the witness stand on Monday and she has claimed that Harvey uh, one forcibly performed oral sex on her in July of 2006 and then two uh, raped her later in that same year. Um, and she had the same, you know, the same reaction. Why is this happening? How do I how am I going to get out of this? Do I, do I fight back? Do I, she, she explains that she froze, but in her freezing, she was trying to figure out how to get out of this instead of just succumbing to what was eventually going to happen to her at first. And she decided in all of that, that she was just deal with it and, and move on. And, you know, she's one of the witnesses that had a continued relationship with him, which is what his defense is raising, that it was, consensual and you know complicates the whole thing but we've all we've covered this before where uh the people who've been attacked typically do carry on relationships with their attacker mm -hmm. for some time now uh yesterday jessica mann took the stand um she's one of the two women who've accused harvey weinstein of sexual assault as part of this ongoing criminal trial um she testified friday that uh same thing. Weinstein engaged in forced oral sex and raped her in 2013. During the testimony, she describes Weinstein's genitalia as intersex and that he had a very delicate ego. She says the first time she saw him fully naked, she part of the reason she just stood there is she's like, I don't understand what I'm looking at. That he doesn't have any testicles and it appears that he may have a partial vagina. And then when Harvey's confronted on it later, he was like, yeah, she got that right. And we don't, I mean, like, I can't tell if he's being facetious or not, but if his ego is that delicate, it sounds like he probably is. 
I don't know what to do with that. I read that. I don't know what to do with that information because I think that intersex people are given like a lot of shit. I don't, I'm not like what I'm saying is uh, part of it is that she has to identify the fact that it happened to her. Yeah. And if she can, if she can explain what it looks like, then it's a viable backup to her story. No, for sure. For sure. I just, um, it's kind of like, uh, I know, like, for a time, it's, like, gay men were being labeled, like, pedophiles. Oh, no. I'm yes, sure there I'm was, not. like, one gay man who was a pedophile. And, like, I know that you're not doing that, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that she's not doing that either. I don't think she's doing she's the She's the delicate, yeah. the, the proper term for it. She didn't, you know. But it just kind of um, makes me uneasy. Like, I really hope that there are... I worry that this is going to, like, perpetuate some sort of stigma against innocent people. Uh, I didn't go that way. I can see what your point is. I feel like she had to, I feel like she had to say that in order, because she's one of the criminal accusers, too. And she had to use that information in order to garner her story as true. Yeah. I mean, our criminal justice system (laughs) sucks when it comes to sexual assault victims. Like, we should be able to believe them. Without them having to share every single detail of what happened. I totally agree. But that's not the current climate we're living in. No. Right. Um, so the defense again asked, there was like 400 text messages between her and Harvey. They're now in evidence. I mean, can you imagine the exhibit list for this fucking case? Yeah. And when she was asked, and this is a really poignant answer. And I, uh, she was asked why she continued to have a relationship with him. She says there's a lot of layers to that answer and there are and i think that it's the prosecutor's job to include those layers in this in the summation of the case yeah for we have at least three more weeks of testimony i wish i could give all of those women like a a free vacation first of all a hug yeah Uh uh-huh yeah and I hope their bravery gives them some peace and some vindication, no matter what happens. Because I think the world believes them. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do. I do too. Uh, Well, that's all for this this depressing Saturday morning. On Crime Talk VK. (laughs) I have to say the champagne did make it um, more... A little more effervescent. Palatable. Yeah. This champagne is wonderful, by the way. Brunch starts at 11. Oh. Yeah, so the security card in our way in here was like, ah, champagne, I see. And we're just like, brunch starts at 11. Brunch always starts at 11. Don't judge. Anyway, I'm have a wonder. judging you on your choice of pants. Oh. <laughs> okay. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you um, next week. Crime Talk BK every Saturday at 11 a.m. to noon on Radio Free Brooklyn. Later days.